The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1. Now, I'm expecting that for many of us, it will be a little harder to find Haggai than if I had asked you to turn to Matthew, right? So uh, I'm going to give you a hint. It's right in between Zechariah and Zephaniah. So now, you have, now that you've got good bearings, you can just get there, right? <laughs> that didn't help some. I see a few people nodding because they're Bible scholars. But yeah, the rest of us, the rest of us, um, we're, you know, <laughs> largely we're less familiar uh, with what are commonly referred to as the minor prophets, uh, and those are in the Old Testament, or as Brother Andrew Higginbotham has taught me, it's much better to refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible. So, uh, and actually, I was a part of an Old Testament survey that Brother Andrew did recently that uh, began spiking my interest in looking into Haggai, so I wanted to give him full credit for that. Uh, if you've got questions or you think I'm preaching anything about this wrong, you just go talk to him and he'll fix it, okay? Uh, so, but most followers of Jesus aren't super familiar with these minor prophets, and that really makes me even more excited to study this book with you. I'm so excited to dig into this with you tonight. Part of why is because we believe that all scripture is from God and profitable for us. Uh, And that's true even if, and maybe especially if, we have to work a little harder to understand the context and the message that these books have for us. But friends, I just want to say it is so important that we do this. Part of the reason why I say that is because there are prominent voices today teaching that we don't need to worry about the Hebrew Bible. We just need to focus on Jesus and the New Testament. And here's the problem with that. This makes absolutely no sense because Jesus' birth, life, teachings, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection, they don't make any sense whatsoever if they are divorced from the redemptive history that they came out of or that came before them. And God has graciously given us that redemptive history in the Old Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the first 11 verses of Haggai chapter 1. We're going to take a little bit of time to get our bearings so we know where we're at in the grand arc and story of Scripture. And then we're going to see what it is the Lord has for us here, okay? So I hope you found Haggai. Um, In chapter 1, we're going to read the first 11 verses together, okay? In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, Because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. 
I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Praise God for his word. Amen. So we're in Haggai, okay? He is one of three post-exilic prophets. So that means after the exile, most of the ones that people are familiar with, your Ezekiels and Daniels and whatnot, uh, that's before the exile. And so a lot of people know bits and pieces of the Bible's history, but once it kind of gets to you know, past King David and Goliath, it gets a little fuzzy for a lot of folks. And so what I think is really important for us to do is just take a minute and let's set this in its proper place. Let's understand where this belongs in the arc of redemptive history, okay? And to do that, I'm going to start back at Genesis, right? So you guys know this one, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, right? So he creates the heaven and the earth. Uh, he makes Adam and Eve. Doesn't take long. Adam and Eve are tempted and fall into sin. They eat the one fruit that God told them not to eat, right? Uh, and we can make fun of them for that, but if we were there, we probably would have been the one. So we probably shouldn't do that. So they sin. Uh, the Bible calls that the, the fall, right? So we fall into sin. God shows up. He declares a curse upon Satan. But even in the midst of doling out the consequences of mankind sinning against God, he's, he's already foreshadowing. He's already tipping his hand and, and saying that, yes, the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. However, the, the, that, that seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's already pointing forward to the fact that Jesus is going to come undo what Satan did. And so the story goes on. From there, mankind only gets worse and worse to the point where the Bible describes them as only violent, only thinking wicked things to the point where God is put in a difficult situation and ends up flooding the earth. We know that mankind survives because God instructed Noah to build an ark. Uh, him and his family survive on the ark. Uh, they come off of that. There's a rainbow. And then we're right back at it, right? You would think, hey, the whole earth was flooded. Maybe we would get the point. Mm, mankind's not too sharp. So we keep moving forward. Uh, God calls a man named Abraham. He says to him, you pack up your stuff, start hiking. You trust me that far, I'll tell you where you're going. He continues to deal with him. He promises him a son. He says that through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This is tough for Abraham to believe. His wife's 90. Uh, he's almost 100 by the time the promise comes through, but it does. God is faithful to his word. He has a son. His name is Isaac. It means laughter, partially because his wife laughed when she heard she was going to have a baby uh, up into her 80s and 90s. So God gives them Isaac. Isaac marries, he has a son named Jacob. Jacob marries, he has 12 sons. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. A son that was favored by Jacob's name was Joseph. You may have heard of, there's a Broadway uh, musical, I suppose, uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dream Code. I hope that's not the only reference you know to Joseph, but for some that might be the case. Uh, Joseph did have a brightly colored coat. He was his father's favorite. He started to have some dreams where his brothers and his Father and everybody was bowing down to him and being youthful and not smart enough to know what to say and not to say. He starts telling everybody about his dreams, and his brothers don't like that because they're older. And in that culture, he should have been serving them. You know, older brother kind of gets the lion's share of inheritance and authority and all of that. And so uh, they come up with a plot. They're going to get rid of him. And so first they toss him in a hole, then they have a change of heart. They pull him out and sell him to slave traders, lie to their dad and say that an animal killed him. This leads Joseph into Egypt. But God's favor is upon Joseph, and he quickly uh, gains uh, favor and recognition in Potiphar's house. He becomes his head servant. 
Uh, but unfortunately, Joseph must have been tan and toned because Potiphar's wife starts to have eyes for him and uh, pretty soon puts him in a position where she's, she's trying to throw herself at him. He rejects her, and, uh, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she starts screaming and lies and says that he tried to attack her, this and that. He gets thrown in jail. In jail, uh, he meets Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, and they start to have a conversation, uh, and he interprets some dreams for them and says, don't forget me. Well, it takes a while, but they do end up keeping their word, mentioning uh, Joseph to Pharaoh much later on, uh, because Pharaoh's now having dreams. He's freaked out about. There's uh, skinny cows eating fat cows, and, and he's freaked out and doesn't know what to do about it. All his interpreters don't know what to say about it. So here comes Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream. He says there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of drought. You better save up during the first seven years because it's going to be real bad for the next seven. Pharaoh's like, I dig that. Here's my signet ring. You're now second in command. Everybody listen to him. And uh, that's how it goes. And because of that, think about it. Had Joseph never got sold into slavery by his brothers and ended up in Egypt, he would have never been in a position to interpret the dream. He'd never been in a position then to be in the spot that when his brothers came looking for food for his family so that they didn't die out. Remember, they're the promised family that supposedly God's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth through. They're about to die of hunger but they show up and they're able to be blessed and helped because Joseph's in this position of authority. Not only do they get food, they get brought into Egypt and given some of the most prime land there. Problem is, Pharaoh changes, forgets about Joseph, forgets about all that, and uh, he begins to oppress this family that had begun to grow prosperous and get larger and larger. And for a span of 400 years, the Hebrew people, Abraham's descendants, are slaves in Egypt. And then God raises up a man named Moses, He's born during a time where the Pharaoh said, kill all the male Hebrews, because uh, he was afraid they were getting too strong. His mother disobeyed that. He, uh, he puts him in a basket, floats him down the Nile, and wouldn't you know it, Pharaoh's daughter ends up finding him. And so Moses is brought in. He's raised among Pharaoh's children. He's raised with the education of the Egyptians. Uh, and he's in a position then for God to call him to be a rescuer for his people. And so Moses gets into some trouble because he sees an Egyptian abusing a a Hebrew, and he kills the guy, thinking, all right, I'm going to solve that problem. But he just created more problems <laughs> for himself and realized he needed to run. So he runs out to the desert, shepherds sheep for about 40 years, and then God shows up to him in a burning bush and says, here's what I need you to do. You're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to demand of that Pharaoh that he lets my people go so that they can worship me and so I can do with them what I've intended to do with them all along. Moses doesn't like that idea. He doesn't think he talks real good, and uh, he's kind of scared to go deal with Pharaoh, but ends up obeying the Lord, goes back. This is where the, the ten plagues happen, uh, where God shows his might and power and ends up to the point uh, at the very end, you know, Pharaoh keeps saying, okay, go, I don't want all these frogs, I don't want all these flies, I don't want the blood in the river, let's go ahead, let him go, but then he changes his mind, his heart is hardened again. The final uh, plague that comes down is that all the firstborn in Egypt uh, of every household is killed. God's people were instructed to put blood over the doorpost of their home, uh, blood of a lamb, and that that death angel would pass over. And so that begins, again, to show the foreshadowing of what God's plan of atonement for sin is going to be about. And so finally, all of uh, the Hebrews, they leave out of Egypt, and uh, they're heading for the promised land. God's leading them, and uh, they hear some clinkling behind them, and they figure out, oh man, Pharaoh changed his mind again. So here comes the armies of Egypt. They're They've come up to the Red Sea, so they're standing from a big body of water in front of them. they got the armies of Egypt at their back, and everyone starts to look at Moses like, Hey, bro, <laughs> what'd you bring us out here for? Because it looks like we're about to get cut down. God says to Moses, 
You get these people to start moving by faith towards the Red Sea, and I'm going to part it. You walk across on dry land. That's exactly what happened. They walked across on dry land. The, the sea was parted to either side. Pharaoh's army was consumed when it fell back in. It's pretty amazing. So now they're free from Egypt, and now they're, they're out in the wilderness. God's leading them by a pillar of cloud uh, by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's providing for them. It doesn't take long, though, and they start grumbling. They start remembering Egypt and how it's hard out here and, and that we had some food back there we liked better than the stuff God's feeding us now. Some real trivial old foolish stuff. But, you know, that's how we are, right? <laughs> and so here we are in the wilderness. Uh, they, they end up sending some spies to go look at this promised land that, that God has said that he's going to put them into, right? He's gonna, they're going to go in and take possession of the land. Hallelujah, that's good. Let's do it. So they send some spies in and uh, the spies come back and like, hey, guys over there are really big, and I don't think we got a chance against them. And so everyone's like, nope, let's not do it. There's a couple spies that are saying, yeah, we, we can do it. God said we can do it, but everybody else is like, nope, I'm scared of big dudes. I don't want to get in a fight. Nobody wants to mess this up, you know, the moneymaker. They want to keep that intact. So they decide to uh, not do what God said, and God is not pleased with that. And so an entire generation of people wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and God tries again with the next generation. Joshua leads them in. They do end up conquering the promised land. They do end up taking possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham from the beginning. Uh, and that brings us into the time of the, the judges, where God appointed rulers to kind of help uh, keep Israel straight, so to speak, and, and continuing to obey him. Um, but they didn't. <laughs> that didn't take very long. You know, they had laws because out in the wilderness, God, taber he, you know, he had them build their tabernacle and set up the whole system with the priests and the whole deal. So they knew what they were supposed to be doing. God had given them the Ten Commandments uh, on Mount Sinai. They had, they had everything they needed from God in order to obey him. But man, we just, we really oftentimes think we can do better on our own. And so this is where we find ourselves again, the time of the judges. If you go read the book of Judges, it is wild. As we get through that, comes to the point where the, the, the people of God, the Hebrews, they start to cry out and say, look, all these nations around us, they've got kings. They've got human kings. We want a human king. We want to be like everybody else. God's like, guys, I'm your king. I'm God. I'm the best king you're going to get. If I give you a human king, it's going to go real bad. They're, they're going to oppress you, and, and you're not going to like it. We don't care. We want a king. Okay. So God appoints Saul to be their first king. He starts out good, but ends up bad. Ends up getting in pride, thinking that he can do things his way instead of God's way. Ends up going bad for him. But then we, we see the, the story of David, who first is anointed just as a little boy, he's a shepherd, he's a son of Jesse, uh, the one that nobody thought God would pick. God likes to do that all the time. Uh, he's the one that ran out to the battlefield, heard Goliath talking smack to God's people and said, nah, -uh, that ain't going down. Grabs five smooth stones and a sling and drops the giant. Comes to the point where David's king. David's a king that is described as a man after God's own heart, but he's not without sin. Uh, the Bible says that not only was he a man of war with a bunch of blood on his hands, but he also ended up having a man killed so that he could steal his wife. David wasn't perfect, but he did understand repentance. He called out to God and asked for forgiveness and ended up in a place of restored relationship with the Lord. He had a son named Solomon. So Solomon built a glorious temple, but Solomon had a son. His name was Rehoboam, and oftentimes children that grow up in privilege and don't see how hard it was to get to that place, he had an attitude problem. And when he had the chance, he took over the throne 
from his father, when he had a chance to lighten the burdens of the people and make, make things better for them, he decided instead to talk smack and work them harder and decided, you know, he had some older advisors who said to him, hey, here's, here's the thing. You're not your dad, Solomon, and you should calm down a little bit and get these people on your side. And he had some younger advisors who said, no, man, you're going to be the king now. Do what you won't do. And uh, who do you think he listened to? Listen to the young guys. Big mistake. So there's a revolt. This, this gives a chance for another guy named Jeroboam to come in and start saying, hey, I'd be a way better king if you just listen to me. And this is where a pinnacle part of the redemptive history of the scriptures comes about where the two kingdoms now split. Jeroboam takes people to the north. That kingdom is called Israel. Uh, Rehoboam stays in the south. That kingdom is called Judah. Okay? Uh, basically, the northern kingdom never gets it right. They're into idol worship immediately and stay there. The southern kingdom has fits and starts, some good kings, some goober kings, some that follow God's law, some that take them back into idol worship. It's a back and forth. But it ends up that, you know, God made a covenant with these people back in Deuteronomy. If, if, you'll, if you'll honor what I've told you to do, you won't be exiled. This will be your land. But if you disobey me, if you decide other gods are more worthy of worship than me, then I'm going to send punishment that's going to wake you up. And I'll use other countries to do that. Well, that happened. The northern kingdom ends up being conquered by Assyria. Uh, a few of the, the, those people from the northern kingdom end up staying there, intermarrying with the Assyrians, and that's where the Samaritans come from. This is part of why later on you see in the New Testament that the, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other because the Jews thought they were these half-breeds with Gentiles. That was part of the deal. But some of the schism went back even farther to the Judah-Israel split. Okay, so they're in the northern kingdom. They get conquered by Assyria. The Babylonians come and conquer Judah eventually, haul them off into exile. So that's where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. All that's destroyed. They get hauled off into exile. Okay? The next big key thing that happens, and we're getting close to being to Haggai, is that the Persians come and whoop the Babylonians. So now the Persians are in charge. And the Persian king is Cyrus. And Cyrus, it's hard to tell. We don't have enough information to know. Either he was smart enough to know that uh, he shouldn't mess with the deities of other countries, or he was just trying to curry favor with the people. It's, it's hard to say. People have different opinions about why. But Cyrus basically said, okay, if you were drugged here by the Babylonians, not allowed to serve your gods, we're going we're gonna to send you home. You can go home if you want to. You can rebuild your temples. You can worship your gods. Just put in a good word for me. Okay? So Cyrus lets a contingency of Babylonian exiles, people that were of the kingdom of Judah, go home, okay? About 50,000 choose to do that. So that's in 538 BC, Cyrus lets the exiles go back. They begin to build the temple two years later, 536 BC. And then the temple work, the rebuilding, it stops shortly after that, okay? So they get discouraged. They run out of resources. There's... Uh, People all around trying to attack them and stop the work from being done. So they don't make it very far. They just lay the foundation. And so for about 16 years, it sits like that, roughly. And then around 520 BC, this is when Haggai comes to prophesy. Okay? So I just caught you up from Genesis to Haggai. You know where we're at now? Everyone good? All right, cool. That was the majority of the Hebrew Bible in, I don't know, probably too many minutes, but it's fine. Okay. That's where we are. So let's look at what God was saying to these people and how it applies to us today. 
I think it's really important that we don't just rip off and start reading stuff in Haggai and you don't understand anything about the exiles, anything about how we got here, and that's a lot, how a lot of people approach the Bible. Let me find a few verses in here and see if I like something, not understanding how it connects to the overall arc of redemption, because man, when you start to put the pieces together and see how this thing goes together, it becomes really foolish to say things like, well, I think, the, I think man made the Bible up, and there's too much. This thing connects too beautifully and intricately and perfectly for this to all be made up. So understanding the Ark of Redemption, it's, it's a strong evidence to the divine nature of the scriptures, uh, but also it helps us not to take things out of context and end up with goofy doctrine. We have to look at the book of Haggai in its place and understand where it's at in the Ark of History. Amen. Okay, so let's read verses 1 through 4 again. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Um, I decided to come uh, do the book of Haggai simply because I know there's a few people that are pregnant. I thought you might want baby names. So we've got Zerubbabel. Uh, that's up for grabs. Uh, Jehozadak also is available. Okay, so nobody's done that here yet. I just wanted you guys to know uh, what the deal is. Okay, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Okay, so the people are saying, it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Boom! Got him! Did you hear the snarkiness right there? And listen, this is the word of the Lord coming to Haggai. You might be like, well, Haggai's got an attitude. No, 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 no. This is the word of the Lord coming through Haggai. God's saying, hold up. It's not time to build my house, but, but, it's, but it's time to build your houses. So this, the, the paneled house reference, that means... We weren't just doing little mud, adobe, basic shelters. These were very nice, intricate houses that were taking a lot of resources and time to build. Okay? God said, oh, oh, but it's time for that. <laughs> Some of y'all don't know that God's funny. He is. It's awesome. Especially when he's smacking us in the back of the head. I like it. You might not, but I do. Okay. So what is, what is God doing here? What are we seeing in verses 1 through 4? God is telling them in no uncertain terms, okay, that their priorities are out of order and that he sees right through their excuses. And, and this is not an uncommon trap for people to fall into. You see, nobody here was speaking against the idea of the temple being built. No one was saying, we shouldn't build the temple. That's not worth doing. They just had reasons why now was not a good time. And we see this commonly today in the form of folks not feeling called or not feeling led to be involved in the redemptive mission that God is accomplishing through his church. As we've said frequently in recent weeks, every disciple of Jesus is called to be a disciple maker, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's according to Paul. You find that in 2 Corinthians. I heard our pastor say once, you should keep a bullet in your pocket. That way you can feel led. I like that saying. Well, are, are pastors supposed to be sassy like that? Hey, man, God was. Oh it's, oh, oh, it's time for you to build your paneled houses, is it? While this house lies desolate. So buckle up. I'm going to get sassier. Haggai's just giving me all kinds of freedom. Amen. You thought I was bad before. Now, I want to say this, though. This, this, is, this is real. Um, did anybody not get the reference of keep a bullet in your pocket? Bullets are made out of lead, so you can feel lead. 
Okay, everybody's got it. All right, good. You know, some of you, you know, don't like guns, so that's all right. All of that is to say, we need to be careful not to say that we don't seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we determine how it is that we serve and what it is that we give to accomplish gospel mission. Of course, we need to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance for that. But may it never be that we would be found to use that as an excuse for apathy, which is oftentimes what ends up happening. Amen. Let's, uh, let's read verses 5 through 11 again. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. And you put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Such is the fate of every person who puts anything before God in their life. We would do good to remember these words. Verse 6, I think, summarizes well with its vivid picture painted. It says that he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. You understand what he's saying? We, we scramble and we strive for all of these lesser auxiliary things Whatever it is we think that's going to lead to joy or happiness. And it's like, it's like earning coins and throwing it into a bag with holes in the bottom. King Solomon, who wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and some other literature, uh, he had a very poignant saying that would describe this very same principle. He said that it's chasing after the wind. What an expression. I mean, how, how absolutely tragic is that picture of person after person and many times unknowingly spending their life chasing after things that once they grab it and they think, finally, I got it. Here is fulfillment. Here is purpose. Here is joy. They open their hands and find yet again there's nothing. They've chased wind. It's, it's foolish and it's tragic and it's the tendency of every single human heart. We all absolutely are bent because of our sin to chase after wind, to try to fill up bags with holes in it. And there are a lot of people, many people, who are upset with God because he will not bless their endeavor to chase idols. There are so many people wondering why this thing isn't working out or this thing isn't working out or, or this other thing, it fell apart. And you see here, God in his great love and mercy, not letting his people continue in their foolish ignorance, but doing what it took to get their attention. And it's quite amazing that 
you may find yourself in the same position today because God had he'd called for a drought on the land. They, nothing that they were doing was producing anything. They were scratching by. Yeah, they had their, their paneled houses, but all the rest of the labor they were putting their hands to was, was coming to nothing. You would think that would get somebody's attention, and yet many people were probably standing there cursing Satan or cursing their enemies, thinking, well, this is all the work of, of divine darkness against us, and yet all the time it was God seeking for their attention. Stop this foolishness and return to your first love. Refer, return to your first priority. And it, did, it didn't work. They, he had to send a prophet as well. And so maybe today you've been in a place of frustration with God. Maybe today you spent a bunch of time shaking your fist at God, wondering why this isn't working out or that isn't working out. Dear friend, perhaps you need to take some time and figure out if this thing or that thing is actually a God thing at all. And perhaps what you needed today, I, I'm, I, and by no means want to make any confusion that I stand anywhere near the place of Haggai in terms of being a prophet, but I am a voice standing here reading the words of Haggai to you. So, so maybe you've been in a place where there's been enough going on in your life that you should have got the point by now, that maybe I should check myself. Maybe I should think about what it is I'm exerting my energy and affection towards. And maybe, maybe hopefully today for you is that intersection where adding to the difficulty that perhaps God has allowed you to go through to try to get your attention, you're now having someone stand up with a clear voice and say, hey, first things first, man. God needs to be over everything, first and foremost. Now, let me say something to be very careful. There are times when God, like he did in this time that Haggai prophesied, will withhold blessing or allow difficulty in order to get somebody's attention, in order to stop them from careening in on a path of destruction that's only going to lead to more pain for them. But that does not mean every single difficulty or every single situation is a result of God doing that. We need to be very careful. People like black and white, very um, easy to kind of delineate between. And so it's like, well, are bad things from God or from the devil? Well, they can be... Nothing from God is bad. You may interpret it as bad because it's not playing into what it is you exactly want at that moment. But there's, there's bad things that happen in this earth because it's cursed and it's just jacked up and things are wrong that Jesus is going to eventually make right. Sometimes difficulty and opposition comes because of that. Sometimes it is from the forces of darkness. But sometimes God in his great love will stick his hand on your forehead and oppose you as well to slow you down, to get your attention. Because he loves you. Well, how do I know which one? Oh, well, you're going to have to walk with the Spirit. <laughs> oh, you're, you're going to have to get in your Bible and get to know the voice of the Lord a little bit if you want to know the difference. Okay? We don't, we don't have any other test than that. I know, I know we'd like it to be simpler. I know if we had you know, a four-question survey, well, is this the case? Is this the case? Okay, well, here's your answer. This is God opposing you. Or, well, no, this one's Satan. We would like it that way, but it's not that easy. That's why we sang earlier that every hour, every minute, we need you. Jesus said in John 15 that he's divine and we're the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So you need to quit acting like you can do something without him. If we had an accurate understanding of ourselves, we'd wake up every day, and before more than two or three breaths made it in and out of our lungs, we'd be crying out to God and asking for his help. That's a good song. We need you, Lord. We ought to sing that one every day. 
The judgment we see here of God upon these people is, is the response of a good and loving father. That's what it is. Now, you might be out here thinking, well, I don't quite see how this applies to me. I mean, these people were obviously foolish people. They, they weren't committed to God. And, and me, personally, I'm, I'm a pretty serious follower of Jesus. So I'm not sure this sermon series is going to be much help for me. Here's a couple of things I think we should consider. First of all, when Cyrus released the Hebrew exiles, everybody could have came back. Okay, but only 50,000 did. And here's why. They had been in Babylon a while. They had spent enough time to get comfortable there, understand the culture, have families, businesses. They, they had comfortable lives there. Going out back to Jerusalem was going to be very little resources, very rough, not any kind of security, really. The place was in shambles. And so what that means is the people that Haggai is prophesying to, these exiles who returned to Jerusalem, these people were committed to God. They, we know that because they took the big risk of leaving the comforts of Babylon to go back and see that Jerusalem was rebuilt so that they could obey the command to inhabit the promised land that God had called them to inhabit. These weren't slouches. These weren't people that you would have just looked at them right away and said, oh yeah, well, they're, they're not committed. You see, because many of us could, could be hearing some of the warnings here from Haggai and think, well, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, that's, I'm sure that's helpful for some people who, you know, maybe aren't quite as committed as me. Hmm, not sure. I'm not sure about that. In addition to the fact that we know that these were, these were pretty serious followers of God, many of their reasons for not rebuilding the temple would have seemed legitimate. Remember, they're saying, it's not time right now. But God said, hold on, but it's time to build your houses. Okay. But if we really examine the situation they were in, some of the reasons they were giving for not rebuilding the temple would have seemed legit. They had low resources. They had been sent with some stipend. A couple uh, of the, the pagan kings had, had sent a little bit of help, but it wasn't enough to get the job done. And so they were working with limited resources. They had opposition from neighboring inhabitants all the time, right? So they're almost always at war, right? That's why Nehemiah was talking about. And, and some of what uh, Haggai has mentioned in, in Ezra and uh, during the... the time around Nehemiah and the rebuilding and all that. And so one of the things Nehemiah told the people when they were rebuilding the wall, which was after this time, but w what he told them was hold a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Man, that's awesome. You don't understand why that's awesome. I don't have time to tell you, but go think about it. Woo! All of life's going to be a battle all the time, man. We're called to build something, but we're going to have to fight and build while we do this. I'm going to tell you about it. I do have time. I'm going to take the time. You might be late for dinner. If that don't get you fired up, man, there's something wrong with you or you can't hear me. I hope you have a sword and a trowel in your hand. I hope you're building something for this kingdom, and I hope you're also doing damage to the forces of darkness when they're trying to come up and mess with what God's building. Amen. Some people only have a sword, man. They're always, always just fighting. They can't build anything. Some people only have a trowel. They don't know how to fight, and they get hit in the back of the head and can't get anything done. You need both. I left a spot for you to say amen, and you missed it again, Love City. What's the matter with you? Man. Amen. I'm going to amen myself from now on. Hallelujah. So they, they had all these reasons that, that could have seemed legit, could have seemed spiritual. I mean, how many times, <laughs> don't raise your hand, but some of y'all in here have said, I don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's time. I don't feel like I'm just called to do that right now. I don't feel led to do that right now. 
When really, if we could have just peeled back the layers on that feeling led there, you just didn't want to do it. But you sprinkle a little spiritual whatever sauce on there and feel like nobody's going to question you on it. <laughs> well, here we are in the book of Haggai. We're bringing some questions, okay? God, they might have sounded spiritual. They might have sounded like they had legit reasons. But God would not let them live under the false pretenses of excuses that sounded spiritual and maybe even legitimate. God loved them too much to live in that place of false pretense. And I'm so thankful. He opposed their pursuit of selfish ambitions disguised as godly discernment. God opposed that. And he'll do that for us. Are you glad? Are you glad that he won't let you just continue on in your folly? Mm, I'm glad. Every one of us, here's what we need to understand, every one of us is capable of this kind of foolish misprioritizing of our time. Not only of our time, but of our talent and also our treasure, the resources that God has entrusted to us. Now, I'm trying to anticipate all of the places people are wiggling out of this, so I also know that somebody might be thinking, well, hey, I'm good, man. There's no way this applies to me. I rent. I don't even have a house to tempt me into misplaced priorities. Friends, <laughs> I know, listen, I sit and think and pray, God, what are they going to be out there thinking while I'm preaching this? How are they going to be getting out of the implications of what I'm trying to teach them from your word? What are they going to be thinking out there? And he tells me. So whoever the renter was out there, gotcha. All right. Here's what we need to know, friends. I'm trying to convince you that you have the potential to be this kind of fool. Is it okay that I tell you that? I'm, I'm assuring you that's true. It has been said of the human race that our hearts are idol factories. And there are countless ways that we're deceived into this kind of foolishness. So even if you're a renter, listen, man, people do this with career. They do it with kids. They do it with spouses. They do it with relationships. They do it with leisure, okay? Satan will constantly try to tempt us to make good things into God things and give them our worship. That is always the game the enemy is playing. He knows he... For the most part, he can't get you, he can't show up horns and pitchfork and the whole deal and say, hey, you should worship me instead of God. That's not going to work for most of you. But he's real sly and he'll come around from the back way and, and, and just get your affections real tied up in your career and how you, you feel a whole lot of, uh, you know, affirmation from that because you're doing real good at that and, and you don't have a whole lot of time to mess with God's stuff or your family, or whatever. Oftentimes it ties to identity. Many times the way that Satan gets us off into these misprioritized, uh, misprioritizing and, and getting us uh, confused about what matters most is, is, by, is by building in us an identity other than a, the primary identity of being a son or daughter of God. Because if you are a son or a daughter of God first, if you understand first that I am a, a, a follower of Jesus because he bought me with his blood, then that helps you to, with, in the rest of life to filter through those affections and those things that would pull you to the right and to the left and to see it through the lens, first of all, of I am a follower of Jesus. I am a son or daughter of God. But when your primary identity begins to become I am 
a good mom, or I am a bad mom, or I am a good dad, or a bad dad, or I am good at my job, or I am this, or I am that, that then your heart starts to be pulled towards those things as a primary source of identity and affirmation and feeling like you have some worth. Friends, let me, let me settle something for you. You have worth, okay? If Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the one who was before the foundations of the earth with God, part of the Trinitarian Godhead, if he laid down his life and let his blood be shed so that you could have a chance at freedom to purchase you away from the taskmaster, this, the, the evil, you know, that, that whole story back in Egypt with Pharaoh, man, that was pointing to something, that was helping us see something. We have a Pharaoh too. It's sin and Satan and death that had a claim to us. But if you have put faith in Christ, his claim is no more. You've been set free. And so you have worth and you have value because if the Son of God himself shed his blood in order to purchase you, there is no, there is no other question to ask. There is no other discussion to be had. Your worth has been established, and it is quite high because the Lord of glory paid the highest price for you that's ever been paid for anything. And so you don't need to keep scraping and clawing and trying to come up with some way to feel like you have worth and value. Your worth and value has been established. And some of you need... Here's, here's a, I'm, I'm going to show you something real wild here. Some of you struggle to believe you have worth because you're prideful. What? How does that work? That seems like the opposite. Here's the thing. If God is the one who created you, and God is the one who paid the price for you to be set free, then who is the one that should have the authority to determine your worth? Should that be him, or should that be you? And when you stand in a place of saying, well, I have no value, or I have no worth because of lies that you've believed, or because of things that have been told to you by other people, or whatever it is, you set yourself up as the authority over God who has already said what your value and your worth is displayed brilliantly at the cross of Christ, I may add. Isn't that sneaky? How it's actually pride that can lead us to a place of not believing we have any worth. If you just trust Jesus, if you just listen to what God has said, if you let him be king and quit trying to be a little king or queen yourself, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, maybe you're willing to own that you have the same tendency for misplaced priorities as the people of Haggai's time, but you might be wondering, okay, well, all right, yeah, sure, yeah, I, I hear that, yes, but then how does this story apply to us? Because we, we have no temple that we're supposed to be building, so what, what is our reaction? Let's say, yes, the Holy Spirit's dealing with me. I'm convicted of the fact that my heart is an idol factory, and I am constantly tempted to make good things into God things and to worship those instead, yes. But what, what do we do? We can't run up the mountain and start cutting trees to fix this problem, right? We can't build a temple in response. God called them to leave their selfish and misplaced priorities to continue the work of building the temple. But the question is, what is it that he's calling us to today? How do we respond as we hear Haggai's words and let them penetrate our hearts? I'm going to read you Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Why why did I read you that? Because friends, there is still a temple being built and it is being built by God himself. And because of his great love and mercy towards us, he allows us to join him in this great and glorious work. How do I respond? I can't go build a physical temple. There's still a temple being built. Christ Jesus has been set as this temple's cornerstone. And every single person brought into this kingdom through the good news of the gospel, being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, is being fitted together as a living stone, being built into this house for God. Hallelujah. We are still called to build a temple, but we don't build this temple by going into the mountains and cutting down trees. We build this temple by going into all the world and making disciples. God no longer dwells in a temple built by his people. He dwells in his people who he is building into a holy temple. Hallelujah. This, friends, this is the answer to the question that I pose. How do we respond? What then do we do? This is the great work before us. This is the great work we're tempted to abandon every minute of every day. This is the great work we often set aside to pursue selfish ambitions and worldly pleasures. And this is the great work that is our most precious privilege. And it should be our greatest passion. That's a big statement. This is our greatest privilege. It should be our greatest passion. Should you just take that because I said it and I'm excited while I'm saying it? Say no. You know how to say no, right? Okay, no. Don't just take it because I'm excited about it and I'm passionate about it. Why? Why should it be our greatest passion to build this temple? (laughs) Because the cornerstone of this great temple that we're called to build is Jesus, our Savior, and his glorious gospel. And that is the best and most beautiful news that anyone has ever heard. That is why we can throw all of ourselves into this great work, this great endeavor. And we know this is not like the foolishness of of having a purse with holes or chasing after the wind, because, friends, we know when we invest our time, talent, and treasure, when we pour ourselves into this great and glorious work of building this New Testament temple that is made of believers who have come to faith in Christ, we are not working for something that is going to perish, but it's eternal When we invest in people, when we pour into people, when we love people and we share God's gospel with them, that's going to matter for eternity, man. Don't you want to be a part of something bigger than just going to be gone when you're gone? Everybody does. Everyone's trying to leave a legacy. We just do it a bunch of stupid ways. And you want to talk about legacy? Invest in eternity. (laughs) That's where the only real legacy lies. It's going to matter. Here's some good news for you. You don't have to be skilled in cutting timber or setting stones to participate in this great work. You must only be willing to preach the good news of the gospel to those who are trapped in darkness, sharing with them the radiant light of Christ and showing them the only path to true freedom that's available to humanity. Hallelujah.
I, for a long time, drug my feet answering the call of God on my life because I believed I was unqualified. And that's a double-edged sword because in a lot of ways, I still am unqualified. Let's just say that. Without Jesus filling in all the gaps where I'm insufficient and inadequate, <laughs> there's a lot of unqualified here. But the problem was I, I, wasn't, I wasn't considering that. I wasn't considering the reality that in all my unqualifiedness, there's a good word for you, that God would, if God was calling me to do something, then, then everything I wasn't equipped to handle, that he would make up the difference. And so many of you, I think, so many of you I know stay out of this great work because you believe the same lies I did. God will qualify you. God will fill in every single thing you're lacking to do what it is he's called you to do. Now, there are specific ways he has called you to fit into this beautiful body of Christ and to use the gifts and talents that he's put in you and he's calling back out of you. But this great commission, this, this base responsibility of all who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good by trusting Jesus, to share the good news of the gospel, to be willing to pour our lives into the process of making disciples, that's for everybody. And I know many of you have stayed away from that because you don't feel like you have what it takes. Let me help you with something. You don't. And that'll help two kinds of people in here. That'll help the people in here who've been staying out of the beautiful mission of making disciples because you felt like you were unqualified and, and, and couldn't do it. But that'll also help those of you in here who maybe thought because of this, that, or the other thing, you're, you are super qualified for it and you were going to miss out on having God's help because you're going to need it. Because if you go try to do this thing in your own strength or because of your own pedigree or whatever you think you got going for you, it's going to blow up in your face and everyone else's that you try to help. We all need to understand the only way we participate in something as beautiful, supernatural, and glorious as building the New Testament temple is by full reliance upon God, his strength, his power, his faithfulness. Amen. Hallelujah. And he is all those things, and he will be. You just got to be willing to preach the gospel. You just got to be willing to show people the way to freedom. I got some more good news for you. We can share this glorious good news with anyone because Jesus has done what was necessary for there to be real hope available to every man and every woman. Listen, I encounter a lot of really broken people, really broken people, but I promise you, I can look at any one of them in the eye. I don't care how much society would consider them to be out of the game. There's no chance for them. Just let them go. I promise you, I can look them in the eye and tell them there's hope for you. And it's, it's not because I think I can do something for you, or it's not because I believe that you've got some inner light that if you just, just white-knuckle it, you can make it. It's not because I think this society is so great, and we live in such a great country, that well, anyone can make it if they want to. I'm, I'm thankful to live here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be, go too far on that spectrum. I'm just saying the only reason I can look them dead in the eye and with conviction say to them, there is hope for you, it's because of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done. It's because Jesus came and lived the perfect life none of us could have. It's because 
I can look at them and say that there's hope for you because, man, I should be dead too. I should be hopeless too. I should have no light in my eyes either. I should be dead in the gutter. I should, have, I should be in jail. I, God knows where I would be. I shouldn't have any hope, man. And yet here I am, and I can, I can stand here and I can tell you with, with absolute fiery conviction, there is hope for you. It's because Jesus came and did what none of us could have. He lived a perfect life. All of us were supposed to, but didn't. And then he died the death that all of us should have. He paid the price so that any man and any woman that will come to him and humbly declare in faith that they are a sinner, that they need a Savior, and ask him to be that Savior, Jesus will answer that call. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. What good news is that? How good is it that you don't have to try to filter as you're going about this beautiful, glorious work of sharing the gospel? You don't have to withhold it from somebody because you, you may be concerned that maybe God can't reach that one. I don't know about you, but I've been in some positions in my heart and in my mind. I remember some times of such utter darkness in the way I thought and the way I conducted myself that, man, whew, if somebody was going to be written off and there was going to be no hope for them. Somebody should have passed me up and not shared the gospel with me. But I'm so thankful that no matter how broken somebody looks or how dark it may seem, there's hope for them. Jesus can reach to them and pull them up out of that. He can take them from slavery to freedom, from darkness to light. The question is, are you excited about that message enough to tell somebody about it? In so doing... We're participating in this temple building that God is doing now with Jesus as the cornerstone. I, I still can't get over the fact that he lets us be a part of it, man, that he would trust me to have a trowel in my hand doing anything. And yet, here we are, called and commissioned and equipped by God through the power of his Holy Spirit to do eternal work. Are you over that already? Are you over the fact already that God has asked you to do things that are going to matter for eternity? Whew, man, it's amazing. God help us. God help us to see it for what it is. Hallelujah. May we be a self-aware people who see our tendency to drift towards idolatry and misplaced priorities. And may we be busy about our Father's business of building this New Testament temple, for our good and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for the first 11 verses of Haggai. Thank you for sending the prophet Haggai to the people of his time to speak truth that they needed to hear. But God, I thank you that this truth, it rings in our ears as well. It resonates in our hearts as well. For we know, God, that we are not unlike the people of that day. That in many ways, we have focused much on building our paneled houses, whatever they are. We have focused on our own priorities, our own selfish ambitions. And many times, God, we have abandoned the glorious good work of building your kingdom. So, God, first of all, we repent and we ask you to forgive us. Please forgive our insolence and our ignorance. Lord, we oftentimes are a foolish, stiff-necked people, but I thank you, God, that you've not left us in a puddle of discouragement, but you have sent Christ to preach good news to us, that there is hope for us, not only to save us, but to bring us in to participate in the glorious work of helping others come to know that there is hope for them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being obedient, to be set as that cornerstone. Thank you, Lord. 
thank you for the beautiful privilege of being commissioned and having placed upon us the ministry of reconciliation, that you would entrust to us the word of salvation. Hallelujah. God, please give us eyes to see and give us spiritual eyes to discern, Lord, when, when our priorities are skewed. Because, Lord, many times we don't know. We, Lord, we are so good at getting our feet tangled in traps. We are so good, oftentimes, at finding the path that is going to lead to nowhere. We chase wind with the best of them. God, so many of our bags are just riddled with holes. And, and Lord, there's been times where some of us, we've shook our fist at you thinking that somehow you've shortchanged us, somehow you've not been good to us, or you've not been faithful to your word, when all the time what we needed to know is that we needed, we needed to turn our eyes to you, that you were getting our attention, that you weren't going to give us our idols so that we could just joyfully careen down the path of destruction, but you were doing what was necessary, opposing us in our folly and drawing us close to the true source of fulfillment and purpose and joy and hope and freedom, and Lord, we know that that is only found in you. So God, please help us. Please reveal to us the things we're not even aware of yet that have caused a division in our affection and that have pulled our attention away from you. Lord, we want you to be first priority. We want to care more about what it is you care about than the foolish temporal things we oftentimes get real passionate about. God, I ask you to stir a passion in your people for the building of your temple, for the saving of souls, for the furthering of your kingdom, for the making of disciples. This is good work. It's glorious work, and we're thankful to be a part of it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for hearing these prayers. We give you all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.